0: isn't it? A few of you think so. All right. <laughs> all right. We'll pray for the rest of you. All right. Uh, I hope that you are encouraged uh, to come together uh, this morning because we worship and we serve a great God. Amen. Um got a couple of things I want to draw to your attention. First of all, um, a little bit of an adjustment that needs to be made in the new Sunday school class schedule. Uh, you'll see in your uh, bulletin there an announcement about new Sunday school classes that are going to start the 14th. Well, uh, one of our teachers told, told me this week that he can't be here the 14th, and so we're going to move that to the 21st instead. Uh, and just, just to give kind of a shameless plug here for Sunday school, uh, you may not know it, or, or maybe you do know it and have just uh, elected not to participate for whatever reason, But Sunday School really is a tremendous opportunity to enhance your own knowledge of the Scriptures and to build relationships with other people who are also um, part of the body of Christ here. And, And if you are looking to grow spiritually, Sunday School is one of the major avenues that we use here as a church to accomplish that in your life. So if you're not currently participating in Sunday School, let me just give you a word of pastoral encouragement. To consider, uh, reconsider that decision, and to um, participate uh, in that with us. Uh, there's right now there's a class on James uh, that I am wrapping up here um, on the last Sunday for me will be the 14th, and there's also a class for ladies uh, that uh, Marion Fisher and um, several of the other ladies are going through um, eight of the prayers of the New Testament. And so if you want to learn to pray like Jesus or pray like Paul or pray like Peter, uh, you can uh, participate in this class and and really be encouraged in your own spiritual growth in that. Uh, And then on the 21st, we'll add these two new classes. The first one is called Love and Respect, which is a class uh, primarily directed at married people uh, about You know, you have all these, you have five different times in the scriptures uh, that wives are told to respect their husbands, and in the same passage uh, that husbands are to love their wives. What does that look like in a practical way? How do you do that? And uh, this class, this book that uh, is written by a guy named Emerson Egrich, is pretty dynamic. Uh, The class will be really dynamic. Uh, Rick and Deb Velock are going to lead that for us. It's going to be exciting. And if you, want to figure that relationship out a little better, uh, this class will help you. Uh, we all need help in our marriages. Amen? Um, now, I married a perfect woman, but she did not marry a perfect man, uh, okay? <laughs> and so, um, so we all need help. Amen? A- and then the other class is going to be through the Gospel of Matthew with Mark Swanson. Uh, if you don't know Mark, he was the guy who was up here uh, leading us in congregational prayer. And uh, Mark is, a, is one of our elders and a, a, a about as solid a man of God as I know. And uh, if you've not gotten to know Mark and Janet, you need to do so because uh, just knowing them is a real privilege. So um, that will be going on. Uh, not one more on a little more serious note. Next week, you know, we're kind of progressing our way through the book of Genesis. Next week, we're going to be at Genesis chapter 19. Now, Genesis chapter 19 is the, the passage about Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And, and their sin and God's judgment on it and the aftermath of that. Now, I, you, you all who are parents, um, you know, I, I don't know how much you want to uh, have your kids aware of this kind of stuff. But we're going to make uh, children's church available at a wider level, up to uh, about sixth grade, if you want to um, not initiate some of those conversations at this point in your kid's development yet. Okay. So just to make you aware of that, uh, I'll try to handle that passage. If you're if you're in here um, next week, I'll try to handle that passage with as much uh, discretion as I can. But there's not an easy way to talk about some of these issues, and so we want to, um, it, it, you know, I'll try to uh, keep it PG-13 rather than R, but there's, again, not, a, not a, uh, uh, an easy way to talk about some of these things. So uh, use, your, use your best judgment on that. I'll announce that again next week in case anybody uh, needs an opportunity to slip out. Um, but just be aware of that. And then we're in Genesis chapter 18 this week. And as we begin, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down face-to-face and have a conversation with God, to have God show up at your house unannounced and actually be able to speak with Him? If that were to happen, what would you say? What would you do i mean it doesn't do any good like you know a lot of us you know we find we, we get a phone call from somebody and and they call up and they say hey we're in town we'd like to drop by uh, we'll be there in about 20 minutes right and everybody all i now be honest ladies i know you do this because we do this at our house everybody does that 20 minute flight of the bumblebee fluffing stuff right <laughs> And you've got that one closet that you do not dare open while they are there, right? And you're hoping that they don't get confused about where the bathroom is and open that door. Otherwise, there'll be, you know, this stuff fall out on them, right? And they come in and you say, oh, sorry, sorry, the house is a mess, the house is a mess, you know? And and rather than just be honest with them and say, look, this is the cleanest our house has been in 10 years, okay? (laughs) Okay. We all kind of do that, right? But when God shows up unannounced, it's not like you can hide anything. And on top of that, if he comes for dinner, what are you going to serve? I mean, having the Queen of England show up unannounced would be a major step down from this. Having the president, you know, with his motorcade, you know, swing by and, you know, that would be a step down. God has showed up at your tent, and he's there for dinner. What are you going to do with this? Well, if you can kind of put yourself in that situation, this is what actually happens with Abraham in chapter 18, that God shows up at his tent. So let's look at the text. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 1 The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sillas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set those before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, try to just imagine this scene. You're a rancher, you live in a leather tent. All your sheep and goats and cattle and donkeys are living in pens or grazing in the hills around you. It's hotter than it was on Thursday because this is a semi-desert part of the world and baths are not that frequent. You are hot and sticky and grungy and smelly. And then one day you're when you're nearly a hundred years old, three figures come up to your camp and you recognize one of them from previous visions that you have had. It is the Lord God Almighty. And he himself is walking up to you with two men that you figure have to be angels that are with him. This is this is Way bigger than anything else that has ever happened in your life. This is the King of Kings with two angels with him. What would you do if this happened to you? Well, what Abraham does is immediately approach and bow low in honor. And he invites the Lord and his servants to stay for dinner. And it's early afternoon the hot part of the day, and so there's a little time before supper, but Abraham decides he was going to lay out the best hospitality that he has available. He provides water. He says, let water be brought. So I'm assuming that that Abraham tasks a servant to bring water uh, to wash and to wash these guys' feet, which was a nice thing to do, particularly in those days. You know, as you walk along in... The hot and the dirt and the mess you get funky and so they wash that would wash their feet and it's it's a refreshing thing to, to to do and have done and he goes and he kills the fatted calf which i think is great we have biblical sanction now for steak it's a good deal <laughs> all right and even if you're gonna if you're gonna give the, the best meal, uh, the one you're going to serve the Lord, you set out the the, the big steak out there, right? And uh, and that's good. And he he kills the fatted calf. He goes and he gets uh, he gets Sarah and he says, start making bread. <laughs> We're gonna have dinner. And it, it specifically mentions he's gonna use fine flour. Uh, so this is this is uh, there was a lot of different kinds of flour. This is probably the best of what they have available, uh, probably wheat flour and probably some that's been sifted to make sure they get all the rocks and gravel and stuff out of it. If you, if you dig up old mummies and whatever out of the ancient world and you look at their teeth, a lot of them have broken teeth, and one of the reasons is is that they would thresh the grain and make their, make their um, flour, and their threshing floors are made out of stone. And you pick up a lot of dirt, dust, and gravel as you're doing this. Well, of course, if that goes in your mouth, eventually you chip and crack teeth and this kind of thing. But they had a way of sifting some of that stuff out. And so this is the fine flour, not the rough stuff, the good stuff. Get the fine flour and make the best bread. And is there anything better, by the way, than fresh, hot, baked bread bread? And that's yeah ribeye steak to go with it, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, fret, it, you know that smell that you get when you have fresh bread bread that's baking. I mean, it's one of the reasons you like to go to Panera, right? You walk in and coffee and bread. All right, we're good to go. <laughs> um, they serve steak. I would like have a membership card there. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, they're gonna they're gonna serve the best that they have available. And they, they make, make that available. They serve a little cheese with it. You know, it says curds and milk. It may be something very similar to like a cottage cheese that's being served here as, as kind of a side dish to go along with this. And notice what Abraham does, though. While they're eating, does he eat with them? No. What's he do? He stands off to the side under a tree, and he waits on them like a servant. Let's them know that how he views himself. Because people in Middle Eastern culture, if you sat, that was a, a sign that you were the person of honor and respect. Whereas if you stood, you were a person of less honor and you were the servant who was standing to be waiting on everybody else. And so Abraham does not sit, he stands and he serves these guys this meal. And, and, and in doing that, he's indicating that all this language that he's used about your servant and your servant and your servant is not just Middle Eastern politeness. But he actually views himself that way, that he's humble before the Lord. And while all this is going on, can you imagine the curiosity? Just imagine this. You know, I mean, I have, I have little kids, as, as all of you know, and whenever we have somebody over, there's always kind of this periphery around, you know, we're, we're talking and whatever, and then every now and then the kids will come up to visit. They're just curious about what's happening, right? Well, now imagine how curious everybody would be if it's not just some, some, some visitor from church or, you know, some, some friend or, or a family member or whatever, but it's God who is seated at your table. You think that maybe anybody would have a glass like up next to the door to hear overhear this conversation? I would. I mean, how often does this happen that God shows up at your house? And and so Sarah, because you know, she's able to, she's probably shoot off all the servants, but she's up on the other side of the tent listening in. Okay, and she hears what's being said. And it's interesting how God addresses uh, Abraham. He says, he starts talking about, um, they say, well, where's your wife, Sarah? Well, she's around here somewhere. Uh, She's in the tent. And the Lord says, I'm surely going to return to you next year about this time, and your wife is going to have a son. And Sarah's listening in, and she starts laughing. And in fact, what she says is, she finds it just funny as can be. And if if I can bring her, her expression into kind of contemporary English, what she says is, really? Seriously? I mean, don't you think the hubby and I are a little old for that sort of thing? I mean, we're not exactly young, googly-eyed honeymooners anymore. And... Um, you know, besides that, we're old. I mean, really old. Is this really going to happen seriously? And so she thinks it's funny. And as she laughs to herself, God speaks to her husband and calls her out on it, and she apparently gets brought out from behind the the tent wall, "Hey, Sarah, what gives?" And so she tries to lie to God to cover up her embarrassment over doubting God's word. Which, by the way, just word of encouragement, this never works. <laughs> okay? It, it is actually impossible to lie to omniscient God. The, just, this is free. Um, he already knows everything there is to know. And he already Saw you laughing, so you can't stand in front of him and go, "No, no, not me." <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. God says, "Yes, you did. You did laugh." But remember, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing, not even that a ninety-year-old lady and a ninety-nine-year-old man would be having their first child together. And then look at how look at how God speaks to Abraham here. When the men got up to leave, it says, verse 16, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Abraham is being a good Middle Eastern host. He is, if you, um, if you go anywhere in the east, what people will do if you go to their house is they will not just get your coat and see you off at the door, they will actually walk with you part of the way. And... So Abraham is doing that. He's walking with them as as they're going, and, and the two angels take off towards Sodom. And Abraham continues to stand there with the Lord. And God says, well, look, and this is interesting. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In other words, it would be like me saying to you, you know, do you have some things you don't discuss with your spouse? God is indicating that he has a deep friendship with Abraham. Because the implied answer to that question is no. Well, of course I'll share with Abraham what's about to happen. Abraham and God have a deep friendship according to God. It's pretty amazing. And first of all, he starts off with talking about, again, the promises that he has made that I am going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless all nations through you. In other words, the Messiah that was promised back in Genesis 3 is going to come through you and you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And he says, I have chosen you so that you can direct your children and your household to keep the way of the Lord. So that the Lord will bring about all the things that I've promised you. And then he also says this. He says, look here. I'm going to judge these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their evil. And because I am completely just, I'm going to personally investigate their wickedness. Now, this next section that we're about to get into is all about justice and about how God is just, and he does not punish the righteous and the wicked together. And so he says, look, I'm going to personally investigate. Sodom and Gomorrah are the only two cities that it's ever recorded that God personally destroyed for their wickedness. Now, he uh, raised up nations to destroy other nations and so forth for their evil. He even raises up the nation of Israel to destroy the Canaanites later on in the Old Testament. But these are cities that God personally, directly took responsibility for wiping out because of their wickedness. And he says, before I do that, I'm going to go down and personally visit and make sure that what has come up to me as an outcry against them is not just Uh, rumor. I'm going to personally investigate it. And so the angels head off to, to Sodom and we'll find out what happens to them next week. But Abraham knows that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and that God will be fully justified in bringing about the judgment that he has already announced. And Abraham also knows who lives there. Remember? Who lives there? lot and lot by this time has a family and so abraham is justifiably concerned if you knew for example my a lot of my family is in the city of indianapolis and it's probably not more wicked than other cities in america certainly less wicked than chicago um um, but most places are (laughs) um, you know I mean, if, we, if Cook County fell into the Great Lakes, we would not be greatly diminished as a country, right? Uh, but let's say that God said the outcry against the city of Indianapolis has come up before me and I'm going to personally investigate. Uh, and if, And if I find them to be a wicked people, I'm going to wipe them out. Well, I know this. I know that God's standard is absolute holiness. And I know there's a lot of unholy people who live there. But you know who else lives there? My family. And so I'm going to plead with the Lord on behalf of that city. And that's what Abraham does. This is one of the most remarkable conversations in the Bible, and we get the privilege of having it recorded for us and being able to read it. Look at this, verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, "'Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? "'What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? "'Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place?' For the sake of the 50 righteous people in it, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, there's a lot of really interesting aspects to this passage. Let me just point out a few things that I want you to be sure you don't miss. That number one, the theme of this whole passage is God's justice. It's about right and wrong, about good and evil, and about God being justified when he judges. You know, a lot of times we think that somehow God is like us. That he sits up in heaven and he rules over the earth and his patience gets to kind of a limit and then he just blows a cork and just, you know, we're going to judge those people. And that is not at all the picture the Bible paints of God. In fact, it says that he is patient. He is long-suffering, that he waits a long time. In fact, remember back in the early part of Genesis when we looked at it, there's this guy that you meet. God has already announced that he's going to judge the earth for its wickedness. And there's this guy that you meet, and his name is Methuselah. You remember him? His name literally means when he dies, judgment. What's famous about Methuselah? He's the oldest guy in the Bible. He lived 969 years. If you had a baby and you were prophesying you know, through the name of your kid when he dies judgment, and it said, and it, and Methuselah lived 18 hours, and then he died. That would give you a very difficult, uh, different picture of God and his justice than Methuselah, who is the longest-lived person in the Bible. Almost a thousand years the man lives. God is patient. He waits. He investigates. He makes sure that he's about to do the right thing. And in fact, When he is challenged by Abraham, who is himself not a perfect man, as we've seen, and who has a, shall we say, sliding definition of what would constitute righteousness in particular cases, starts bargaining with God, and God, interestingly enough, relents in each case. A lot of people think that whenever God judges, that he isn't being fair. But God is concerned to not only show that he is fair, but that he is more than fair. In fact, he is compassionate and gracious beyond measure. And God says, look, I have chosen you, Abraham, to teach your children and your household the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Do you remember that? Look here, verse 19, where it says that. I you will you are going to be responsible to teach people about what is right and just and how do you learn about what is right and just by watching the Lord and finding out? And so God decides to demonstrate and reveal what is right and just to Abraham with the, some of the most wicked people who have ever been on the earth, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is kind of a test case. Will God do what is right and just here? And, of course, we know that he always does what is right and just. But Abraham starts this negotiation with him, which I think is absolutely fascinating. God permits Abraham to engage him in sort of kind of a a Middle Eastern or or Third World bizarre kind of bargaining. I remember being in Mozambique. uh, It's been now uh, almost 12 years ago. And you would go into these, uh, these shopping areas, and you've got all this stuff. You know, you've got carved elephants out of stone, and you've got, uh, you know, wooden giraffes carved out, and you've got these giant uh, batik prints you know, with the colors and the wax that they do. And they're just beautiful. And, of course, looking like I look in a country like Mozambique, in other words, being a white person in an all-black nation – you kind of stand out a bit, and and so you, the, when you enter into the shopping area, well, you might as well have a big sign on your forehead that says "Easy Mark," <laughs> okay? Because you are not only a white person, but you are a, an American and sound like an American, and so you are a by definition rich white person. So we're going to horn you for as much money on this stuff as we can. And I always felt like I was doing good if I could get down to half of the original number that they quoted me, which was probably three times what a native would pay. But nonetheless, you know, I thought, well, this is my donation to the local economy. But you start out, how much for that? Oh, uh, uh, you know, $50,000. Uh, no. How about $10,000? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, you know, 40000 How about fifteen? How about 30? How about 20? 22. We have a deal. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, And this is kind of the idea. And if you you go to the third world and you go to a shopping area, this is what you will do. There will not be price tags on stuff. You just have to ask how much. And depending on how hungry they are and how much of a victim you look like, that's how much the, the price is. And God allows Abraham to do this with him, only what's at stake is not how much money you're going to spend on coffee, but something much more serious, the lives of people, of a whole city, two cities of people are at stake in this negotiation. And... Abraham knows exactly where his nephew Lot is, and that he is living in in the city of Sodom, and so he requests initially. Well, will you spare it for the sake of fifty people? And then forty five, and then forty. And then he gets really bold and jumps down to thirty. Stops going down by five and starts going by tens. Well, how about how about twenty? Well, if I can, if I can just ask one last time, how about ten? He knows that Lot's there. Lot is a righteous man, relatively speaking. He knows Lot has two kids, two daughters, uh, and that they're both um, about to be married. So maybe we can save the husbands in there too. Well, now we're up to, now we're up to six. Well, surely there's another four people in there somewhere that we can save the city and that these people will not be destroyed. And notice how he makes his appeals. He makes his appeals based on God's character. He doesn't say, well, simply because I have asked, but because, he says, far be it from you, God, to do this. In other words, Lord, I'm asking you on the basis of your own character, that you're a gracious and compassionate God who won't destroy the righteous, and the wicked together. And I know that, and I want you to live up to it. And God says, okay, I will. And I will, even if the number of righteous people in this vast place is very small, I will still preserve it for their sake. And in this whole conversation, God teaches some amazing things about himself that I want you all to see, because these are really important. Number one, that God does... Preserve the righteous from judgment, not just through it. In other words, that he withholds his hand of judgment to protect righteous people. Not simply allow judgment to fall and bring righteous people through it safely, but he protects them from it. Now that, you know, if you, when you talk about your beliefs about the last things, about what will happen at the end of the world and all that. Uh, one of the reasons that I happen to believe that Jesus Christ will return before the great tribulation falls, that, that he will come back and he will claim the church out of the world and then let judgment fall is precisely this, that God protects the righteous from judgment, not simply through it. And he underlines that here in this passage. Uh, he makes a distinction between the, the, the righteous and the wicked, not just in the hereafter when there's the great separation of sheep and goats, uh, but also in the here and now, that God treats people differently based on who they are. And another big thing that we need to see is that sometimes God allows evil to persist for the sake of the righteous who would be destroyed along with the wicked if he were to judge. You know, the question always comes up, how come God doesn't eliminate all the wicked people in the world? Whenever you share the gospel with somebody, eventually uh, you'll come across someone who will raise that question. They'll say, well, if God is good and if he is all-powerful, then how come all this evil? And the answer is this, that If God were to judge evil on an absolute standard, he would have to eliminate everybody. And so kind of my smart aleck answer to somebody who asked me that question is, what if you ask God to eliminate all the evil in the world, starting with you? Well, of course, nobody wants to do that. And God is gracious and compassionate, and so he allows, a lot of times, evil to persist for the sake of the righteous people who would be destroyed along with it. Let me just get contemporary for a minute. There's a lot of evil in the United States of America. Amen? One of the reasons I believe we have not been destroyed as a nation is because of the righteous people who still are part of it. And God has stayed his hand of judgment to a degree because for the sake of you and I who would be punished along with it. And so God sometimes allows evil to persist for the sake of the righteous people who are there. And and God waits sometimes to bring judgment, as he promised Abraham that he would do here. And one final thing I want you to see in this this passage with this negotiation between God and Abraham is how gracious God is. Uh, He is God. And so he could have said to Abraham, he could have said, Abraham, leave me alone. Who do you think you are anyway trying to negotiate me down to a certain number of people uh, who are righteous, at which point I have to spare all the wicked ones? If they were really righteous people, they'd have got out of that wicked place. But God doesn't do that. And in fact, God treats Abraham's appeal as essentially right. It's fascinating. fascinating. In other words, Abraham, you're right. It's not not consistent with who I am as God to judge the the wicked and the righteous together. So I'm going to let the city stand if there are that many righteous people. Even though they make up a tiny minority, I'm going to let the city stand because it's not consistent with who I am as God to simply let judgment fall willy-nilly, no matter what impact it has. Now, As we close here, there's just a few things I want us to just burn in our hearts from this text. And if you can just lay hold of one, you know, I I know that, I I mean, I preach for about 40 minutes every week. And I know that probably for a lot of you, it feels like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hose. And if that's how it feels, I I, uh, don't apologize for that because I think it's absolutely important that we understand at a deep level the scriptures. Uh, And I want everybody to have the kind of deep understanding of the scriptures that I think is absolutely critical for a successful Christian life. But I will say this, that if you only get one idea out of each message that I give and it changes your life Because you are obeying God in that area. After 52 weeks, you will have made 52 major adjustments to your life, and your life will be immeasurably better. Not based on any wisdom that I have had to share, but based on the Scriptures and the transformative power of God's Word being at work by the power of the Spirit in your life. So if you can just get one of these, but I'm going to give you four, okay? Um, First of all, nothing... Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Sarah laughed when she overheard what God said about she and Abraham, but nothing is too hard for the Lord. And it could be that in your life you have given up trusting the Lord for something because it seems absolutely impossible that it would ever happen. But nothing is too hard for the Lord. You know, a lot of times when you when I counsel with people, they bring to me to me some situations in their life that seem absolutely impossible, and from a human perspective, in fact, they are. But here's what keeps me meeting with people and keeps me pointing them back to the Lord. It's that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Too hard for me, too hard for you, but not for Him. There is no such thing as a truly hopeless situation if you've involved the Lord in it. Nothing is too hard for him. Uh, Secondly, pray boldly but with humility. Abraham is very humble in his prayers. He is constantly humbling himself as he speaks to God. He refers to himself over and over as your servant, your servant. Um, I'm dust and ashes. I'm... Uh, May the Lord not be angry, but I want to ask this. Uh, But he's also bold enough to speak and ask God for what he really wants. And God is not scared of that. He actually approves of that. He affirms Abraham and what he's doing. And remember what Hebrews says, Therefore let us come boldly before the throne of grace, with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Sometimes our prayers are not too big, they're too small, and we're too timid to ask God for what we actually want and do so in a spirit of humility, accepting as God's will whatever comes, but asking boldly for what we actually believe in and want. Number three, God desires a close friendship with us, even closer than he had with Abraham. We think it's pretty spectacular most of the time when we see an incident like this and you go, wow, what would it be like to have God in the flesh have dinner with you? But you know what? God came in the flesh, and he did not just come for a few hours and a meal. He came and lived. Among us. As John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. He lived with us for at least 33 years. And on top of that, He not only lived with us, He sacrificed Himself on a cross for us, taking away our sin to make us righteous people and to save us from God's judgment. And not only that, he was raised from the dead, which proves not only that he was God, but gives us with him the promise of an eternal life, that our death is not the end, but is a uh, the beginning, the doorway into a new kind of life where we will live with him not simply for a few hours, but for all eternity. And on top of that, he gives us his Holy Spirit who not only comes to us and directs us but dwells not outside of us but within us because God desires a close friendship with you and me. He has done everything possible to make that a reality. And all that it depends on is that you decide to live your life by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and to walk with him. And that by the Holy Spirit's power who dwells within you if you have trusted in Christ to live in a way that pleases God. And your relationship with God, you can be God's friend in an even better way than Abraham. Last thing. Righteous people intercede for the wicked. We ought to pray that God's judgment not fall on people because it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen? And where you see great men of God in the Scriptures, what you see them consistently do is praying for wicked people who deserve God's judgment. And where you see people who fall short, you see them used as a negative example. Consider two people, just to start with. Consider Abraham, who prayed for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they would be saved from God's judgment. Then consider Jonah, the prophet who prayed that God's judgment would fall. Which one would you rather be? The negative example or the positive one? Or consider Moses, whom God twice says, stand aside, Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over with you. What does Moses do? He falls on his face and he has the same kind of conversation as Abraham does. Far be that from you, Lord, to do that. Because if you do that, the Egyptians will hear about it and they will, your reputation will be marred. And they'll say, He brought him out of Egypt, and he was able to do that, but he wasn't able to bring him into the land, and so he killed him in the desert. Far be that from you. Don't start over with me. Now you know what I'd have done? If I was leading around a group of whiny. Moaning, griping, rebellious people who've tried to overthrow me at every turn, I'd have said, All right, (laughs) let's start over. (laughs) Okay? Um, That's not what Moses does. Moses says, No, no, I'm not, you, you, you take me, not them. You know what Paul says in the New Testament? Paul says, I wish that I were cursed that I came under God's wrath rather than my people, according to the flesh, the nation of Israel. Far better that I die and go to hell and that these be saved. And you know what Jesus said? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. We live in 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 a city and in a country at least as wicked as the city of Sodom. And a lot of times it's easy for us as Christians to say, oh, that God's judgment would fall. You know what? What we ought to pray is, God, that you would spare for the sake of the righteous. That you would give us time to reach our neighbors and our friends and our family with the gospel that they might be spared. Because we know we deserve your judgment. Father, we pray that you would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Pray like Jesus. Pray like Paul. Pray like Moses. Pray like Abraham. And intercede for the wicked that they might be saved in turn rather than be judged and destroyed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, We know that apart from your grace and mercy, all of us deserve judgment. All of us are under the curse of sin. All of us deserve the penalty that results from it, that we would be put to death for eternity in hell. And Father, by your compassion and grace and justice and love, you have sent your Son to make friends with those who hated you. And Father, we pray that you would get rid of your enemies, not by your judgment, but by your grace and compassion, and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as your Holy Spirit, who dwells within us as believers, uh, changes us and makes us righteous people. And Father, that those who are currently wicked, those who are currently going to hell on a rocket ship working at going to hell, doing everything they can to rebel against you and to commit treason against the God who created them. Father, we pray that you would be compassionate to them too and that you would give us a heart of compassion for them to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, which is the only hope we have, of escaping from judgment and experiencing the close friendship with you that you've paid with the death of your son to buy. And Father, we pray these things,